0: In times of distress and sadness, if we are to be comforted by others, we really want to turn to someone who has experience of the kind of thing we're going through. We want someone who can really empathize because they have experienced this kind of pain.
1: Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller, and glad you've joined us today. And, Jonathan, I think that is just a a basic human desire that when we are walking through pain, we want to connect with someone else who really can understand the kind of pain that we're walking through.
0: Well, we want that, and I think I would go so far as to say we need that. And part of the wonder of the biblical presentation of the person of Jesus Christ and of the message of Easter is that Jesus came to this world as a true human being, that he might suffer in our place, suffer for us at the cross of Calvary. And in doing that, in entering the experience of humanity and of human suffering, we discover that Jesus is able to sympathize with us in a way perhaps we, we never thought possible, but in a way that is, is so vitally important for us to know and understand. And, and it makes him approachable And it makes knowing him so, so meaningful. Yeah.
1: Well, we're going to continue to look at these truths that you've been sharing with us today from the book of Luke. If you have a Bible handy, join us in Luke 22. We're going to look at verses 39 to 62 as we begin a message called A Journey of Loneliness. Here is Jonathan.
0: Today, we turn our minds towards the cross of Calvary. As we begin our Easter series here in Luke's Gospel, you'll notice that we've entitled the series An Invitation to Paradise, remembering Jesus' words to the criminal on the cross next to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. And it's a breathtaking thought that Jesus Christ has the power and the grace to welcome that thief, to welcome you, to welcome me, even to join him in paradise. We'll come to that invitation in a couple of weeks as we follow Luke's story through to the cross. But, of course, the timing and the context of that invitation when we come to it, it is significant. Jesus says those words while he hangs dying on the cross. It is through his death we will see that the gates of heaven are opened. Well, with that invitation in view, we're reminded that the story of Easter does take us to the heart of eternal realities, to the most important questions that any of us can ever face. What happens when I die? How can I have peace with God despite my wrongdoing? Is it possible to have hope beyond the grave? You see, these are the questions of Easter These are the issues at the heart of the Easter story. And my simple prayer for this Easter season is that each one of us here would know and would respond to and would delight in the invitation of Jesus Christ, even to join him in paradise. Today, we pick up the story of Jesus's life and his ministry at this crucial moment where he is preparing to go to the cross. Earlier in this same chapter in Luke 22, he has shared a Passover meal with his disciples at the upper room. It's been a time among friends. It's been an intimate occasion. But at the Last Supper, Jesus has also revealed that one of his disciples, one of the twelve, will soon betray him, while another will deny even knowing him. It sounds unlikely. It sounds almost unbelievable that this should happen. But in the verses that we turn to now, we discover that Jesus' prediction is all too accurate. After the meal is finished, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives to find a quiet place to pray. He goes to the place at the foot of the Mount that elsewhere in the Bible is called Gethsemane. He asks his disciples to wait as he goes on further alone, calling them to pray while they're waiting that they may not fall into temptation. And so Jesus goes on and he begins to pray with an earnestness and an agony that almost takes us by surprise as we read the story. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And as he prays, Luke tells us, his sweat is like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus walks back in the darkness to find his disciples and he discovers them asleep. They haven't managed to keep praying as he called them to keep praying. And he urges them to pray once more. While Jesus himself has been wrestling in prayer, they have been dozing. And while their failure in this relatively small thing, it hints of greater failures to come. As Jesus is still speaking to his dozing disciples, verse 47, a crowd comes up to him. Now, throughout the gospel story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a crowd around Jesus is usually a crowd of eager listeners wanting to know more and see more and experience more of this wonderful person. But now, here in the garden, the crowd is an altogether more sinister thing. And we can picture, can't we, the flickering torchlights revealing clubs and spears and menacing faces. The mob, it's led by Judas, a friend who has decided to betray his Lord, even as Jesus himself predicted. As Jesus is being led away now to the high priest's house, Peter follows, we're told, from a distance, verse 54. He's there, but he's not quite there. No doubt he's trying to follow out of some loyalty to Jesus, no doubt wanting to help, no doubt wanting to support him, but he's keeping his distance to For fear of the consequences, should he be too closely identified with this arrested man, this enemy of the authorities. But now as those who arrested Jesus sit down together to warm themselves by the fire, Peter, we're told, sits down with them. He joins them. And when a servant girl identifies him as a friend of Jesus, and then another repeats the claim, and yet another, Peter denies it vigorously. He denies it three times. It's a dramatic narrative, and for many, it's a familiar one. But to understand fully all that's going on in this rich passage, we need to pay close attention to the words that Jesus speaks immediately before going out to the Mount of Olives. In a sense, the words that Jesus speaks before leaving that table with his friends, those words shed light on the whole of what's going to take place as he goes to Calvary. Back in verse 37, you'll notice that Jesus quotes from perhaps the most famous chapter of the whole of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, saying, It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And Jesus says, I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53, it is reaching its fulfillment, says Jesus. Many of us will be familiar with the song of the suffering servant recorded in Isaiah chapter 53. Here in this famous chapter, the prophet speaks of a promised figure called the servant of the Lord who endures and faces the very judgment of God in the place of sinful people. The chapter speaks of an innocent sufferer who pays the price of the people's guilt and the people's sin as a substitute. Now, this passage, it is so important, it is so foundational to our understanding of Easter that I'd like to invite you actually to turn with me there just for a moment to Isaiah 53. I think we need to get it in our mind's eye as we look at this Easter story. This is the passage of Old Testament Scripture that Jesus says is being fulfilled now as he goes out to the garden and then heads to the cross. Isaiah 53 from verse 4, just follow with me. Surely he, this servant of the Lord, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. This is in what's known as a prophetic past tense. It's, it's spoken in the past tense because as the word of the Lord, speaking of the future, it might as well already have happened at such a certainty, the prophetic past tense. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and we can picture the garden, can't we? And who can speak of his descendants? And then just notice down to verse 12 with me, the verse that Jesus quotes in part. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. As we look back at the whole sweep of the Old Testament on the promises of God and the hopes of God's people. As we do that, looking at the whole sweep, Isaiah chapter 53 really stands out in a way as the key promise, the key hope. Humanity is unable to save itself. God's people have shown themselves unable to be faithful. No, if there is to be hope for humanity, hope for the people of God, something extraordinary must take place. God must intervene, a Savior must come. And now, as Jesus approaches his final hours of his earthly life, he declares that he is indeed this promised Savior who was to come. He is the innocent sufferer who would die for the guilt of the people and bear the very judgment of God. Well, now back to to Luke 22. Jesus highlights this promise of the suffering servant in verse 37, but as the drama plays itself out, we see the unique way in which Jesus fulfills this role of the servant. A number of key aspects of the story show us here in Luke 22 how Jesus can and how Jesus will fulfill that role as he goes to the cross. And in the time we have together this morning, I'd like to focus on three aspects of this presentation of Jesus in our passage, his humanity, his faithfulness, and his isolation. Those three. And I want us to see how each of those is necessary if Jesus is going to do the work of that suffering servant, if he is to fulfill that saving role.
1: You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called A Journey of Loneliness. It is part of our series, An Invitation to Paradise. Today, taking a look at Luke chapter 22, and I hope you'll stay with us. But if you ever miss a broadcast, or maybe you join us late, you have to leave early, or you just want to go back and listen to a program again, you can always do that at our website. Come to EncounterTheTruth.org. You can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. Again, our website address is EncountertheTruth. Let's get back to the message. Again, here is Jonathan.
0: So first of all, the humanity of Jesus. Jesus approaches the cross as a true human being. I don't know if you've ever spent time in an art gallery, maybe our one even here in town, the National Gallery, looking at paintings of Jesus from centuries gone by. I'm no expert on these things, but it's interesting sometimes to notice the contrasting emphases from painter to painter and painting to painting when it comes to the person of Jesus. Sometimes a painter will want to emphasize Jesus's divinity, his deity, his otherness, and you know, Jesus will be painted with a gold halo, above his head. He may be somewhat elevated off the ground. He may have light sort of emanating from his face. Then there will be these very down-to-earth portraits of Jesus emphasizing his humanity, sometimes his suffering, depicting the fact that he lived a very real and in some ways very ordinary human life on earth. Well, without considering or debating the merits of that kind of art, if a painter wanted to paint the scene we are looking at now, he or she would have to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. There would be no choice about it. It would have to be a down-to-earth, real-life portrait. It would have to capture his agony and even his vulnerability. And for us, as we read this account... And as we observe these events, we can hardly help but be struck by what we see here of the genuine flesh and blood humanity of the Lord Jesus. This is one passage in scripture that particularly emphasizes this reality. In a sense, as we read these verses in light of all that we know about Jesus, his heavenly origin, his miracle working power, his unique relationship to God the Father, the big thing that jumps off the page for us is the very human struggle that Jesus has here in the garden on that night so long ago. Jesus knows that a great trial is before him, and he prays out of an obvious, a tangible inner distress. Verse 42, you can just feel it. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Father, I know that what lies before me now is unspeakable. It is agony. It is suffering, Not only physical torment, although it will be that, but spiritual darkness as I am separated from you, even as I face your judgment for sin. Father, if you are willing, would you take this cup from me? It is a dramatic moment of revealing and of affirming the true humanity of Jesus Christ. And in his time of need, verse 43, an angel comes to him, appears to him, strengthens him, But despite the help of the angel, the pain, and the struggle, it's very much still there, verse 44. And and consider the reality that this is the very Son of God, the eternal Son of God, verse 44. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I understand that it is physically possible for people actually to sweat blood in extreme conditions. And maybe that's literally what's taking place here. Or perhaps it's a vivid piece of imagery. In any case, we get a sense of the degree of anguish, spiritual and physical anguish that Jesus is now experiencing. And as we take all that in and we try and picture it and we try to process it, this one thing becomes entirely clear to all of us. This is a true human being facing true human suffering. Now, I just want to pause on that point for a moment and allow that truth to sink in. The Lord Jesus, he came down from heaven to save us. But saving us didn't involve sort of waving a magic wand over us. It didn't involve just snapping his fingers to make our sin and our sorrows disappear. No, saving us involved becoming one of us, entering into the pain and the sorrow involved in human existence and then plumbing its depths for us. In times of distress and sadness, in times of loss and and grief. If we are to be comforted by others as we need to be comforted by others, we really want in those times, don't we, to turn to someone who has experience of the kind of thing we're going through. Someone who has been there herself, been there himself. We want someone who can really empathize because they have experienced this kind of pain and this kind of distress. wonderful implication of the true humanity of Jesus Christ, depicted so richly in this passage for us, a wonderful implication is that we do have a Savior in heaven who knows us, who understands our condition, who understands our trials and our weaknesses, who empathizes with us. And when we look upon the range and the depths of the suffering of Jesus in the final days of his life, the abandonment, the injustice, the spiritual distress, the physical agony, the grief, the shame, and so much more, as we look upon our Savior in these final hours, we see that there is hardly a pain and hardly a trial with which he is unfamiliar And so today, when we cry out to Jesus in times of fear or of sadness or of pain, when we cry out to him, we cry out to the the one who knows, who has experienced, who has lived through the very things that we suffer, and so much more. When we lift our eyes to heaven and cry out for mercy and cry out for help, We are not met by an unfeeling and a steely heaven. No, our cry is heard above by one who has suffered here below and who knows what it is to be human and to suffer as a human here on earth. Now, that is a very profound and a very, very wonderful thought. It's one that we need to hold on to and meditate upon in our own times of suffering and trial. That is a truth to treasure, if there ever was a truth to treasure. I love those words of Fanny Crosby. I've I've quoted them before, who captured this so well. You'll know them. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer? Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share and how he has shared them in the garden at the cross? Jesus knows our every weakness. He really knows them. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Isn't that wonderful? That Jesus, the human being, can sympathize with us, it is a wonderful, it is a life-changing truth. But of course, it is not the only or even the primary significance of Jesus' humanity here in the passage, even greater than the fact that he can sympathize with us, is the truth that because he is a human being, he can actually save us. This takes us back again to that prophecy of Isaiah. Isaiah, as we know in that passage, speaks of a coming servant who will take the place of sinners. He will bear our guilt. He will die in our place. The scriptures make it clear in so many places that God's penalty for sin is death. And so if sin is to be paid for, if God's standards of justice are to be met, a death for sin must occur. That is a basic biblical principle. But the idea of the Son of God coming to earth to die for our sin, paying our debt, bearing our judgment, it poses a very, very big and basic problem. For surely the Son of God, the Divine Son, the Eternal Son, surely He cannot die. Surely God does not die. And it's true, isn't it? As the Eternal God, He cannot die. But as God become man, as God incarnate, well, he could die. And praise God, he did die. And so here in this garden, in this night of agony, we are reminded of the saving truth that Jesus has indeed become man. He has become a true human being. And he's done so that he might die in our place and die for human sin. Here is a moment of the vivid and dramatic confirmation of the humanity of Jesus. We see it here in the garden as clearly as we see it anywhere else. Now Jesus, of course, is fully aware of all that is to come. Notice again the words of his prayer. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, the cup is the cup of God's wrath poured out in judgment. The language is actually used that way just a little bit before that servant song in Isaiah. In chapter 51, in verse 17, the prophet says this, "'Rise up, O Jerusalem, "'you who have drunk the cup of his wrath, "'you who have drained to its dregs "'the goblet that makes men stagger.'" You see, the the cup of God is the cup of his wrath. It is a picture of his judgment, To drink of the cup is to face and absorb the very anger of God for human sin. And as Jesus prays in the garden, he knows that at the cross, he will drink deeply of that cup. He will drink the portion reserved for you and the portion reserved for me. And as a true human being, while he is able to be our substitute, he is able to drink that cup. He is able to stand in our place as one of us. He is able even to die. In these hours approaching the cross, we are reminded and we are shown that Jesus is truly human. Able not only to sympathize and empathize, but able even to save.
1: That is Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth. Part of our message, A Journey of Loneliness, and we'll continue next time. So I hope you make it a point to tune in. If you ever miss a program, come and listen online. Our website is encounterthetruth.org. Well, it's a time of year that maybe we begin to turn our attention to Easter. And uh, while we probably, if you've grown up in the church, are very familiar with the idea of Jesus raising from the dead, have you ever talked with an unbeliever about that? You know, sometimes they're kind of scratching their head, saying, how can you believe this? I mean, is there really credible evidence that any person has ever raised from the dead? Well, that is what Lee Strobel, former investigative journalist, takes a look at in his book, The Case for Easter. And this is our thank you gift to you as you give a financial gift and support Encounter the Truth this month. We'd be happy to send you this book, The Case for Easter. Find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org. Or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's EncounterTheTruth.org or 833-998-7884. You can also write us at Encounter the Truth, 2176 Prince of Wales Drive, Ottawa, Ontario, 2KE0A1. Or in the U.S. at Encounter the Truth, 215 North Arlington Heights Road, number 102, Arlington Heights, Illinois, six zero 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 four. For Jonathan Griffiths, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.